Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone, super happy today to be here with Niels Reimers. This is such an exciting episode. Uh, like I was telling you, um, I have so many questions for you, Niels. Um, but first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Great to be here. Um, super happy to have you on the show. Um, maybe for the people who might not know you, um, could you give us a bit of... Um, Uh, an insights of who you are. It can be professionally, but also personally. Yeah, sure. So I'm Niels. Um, yeah. So so back then when I started my PhD, my professor asked me, hey, have a look at deep learning. Is it relevant for NLP or not? So this was in 2013. So yeah, in my lab, I was known as the first deep learning person, like trying to uh, uh, convince everyone to switch away from support vector machine, naive base, to using neural networks. So, and yeah, it was, was quite great to see the progress on this. Um, in my research career, have been doing a lot of different things, have been starting with named entity recognition. Then what a lot of people know about me is um, sentence bird. So when bird came out, um, showed how can they be used to map text vector spaces for a lot of use cases, clustering, topic, extraction, and search. Um, built the sentence transformer library, put out a lot of benchmarks, the beer benchmark, MTAP benchmark, and so on. So I've been working a lot in this space. I've been working for Hugging Face to, to advance yeah, the science there, and then joined last year at Cohere as director of machine learning um, to work on in a more production setting and see, okay, how can you combine search with large generative models? Um, Yeah, half a family, two kids, live in Germany and Darmstadt, close to Frankfurt. And yeah, super cool to be here. And it's an amazing um, community. Also, it was cool to see the community grow over like like the past 10 years, like really 10 years ago. It was just me at the university trying to convince everyone that SVM and Naive Base is bad and shitty and you should not use it and use these strange neural networks to nowadays Sadly, new graduate students, they don't know about support vector machines and feature engineering and feature hacking. So they just know neural networks. But yeah, it's, it's great to see the progress and the growth in the community. That is awesome. Your point of view is, is, um, is very unique in that way that you really so Because I was discussing... Um, on another episode with Adi Polak, who wrote, um, who wrote the recent book of, um, of Spark at Scale, um, published with O'Reilly. And um, it was very funny to, to discuss about, um, about how it is such a breakthrough with the latest um, advancements. And it is such a, a little part of what is machine learning in general. And it is such a little part of deep learning. And the fact that you've been from the beginning 
into deep learning and and understanding that and and seeing the evolution i would like to come back on on like uh, maybe the the premise of your research uh, like where did you start it and how how it grow from your point of view your work at hugging face uh but all of that to say that it is very impressive uh that you've been in the field uh, for for so long and um and like i said it makes me want to ask a lot of questions um But could you give us maybe a, a short retrospective of your career? You mentioned that you worked at Hacking Face. Now you've started a new position. But um, to put everything into place and, and kind of uh, know you better. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, studied. So originally I've been working a lot in um, web development. So early 2000s went into web development so internet was like the big thing in the early 2000s everyone wanted to have like internet and websites so similar like as now everyone wants to have generative ai um have been building different software as a service products and companies back then um, at that time software as a service didn't exist as concept um so so it was also really interesting to explore this type of new market and yeah to see how can you position yourself Um, have been working quite long in cryptography also and IT security, so how to audit um, IT systems, how to break them, how to exploit software, um, cryptography, how to encrypt and decrypt stuff and really make sure that yeah, your, your data stays private when it's in transmission. But then um, transitioned away to like AI and, and machine learning. So when I went into AI in 2013, um, was still like really a niche field so it's hard to believe but like it was like i don't know a tiny field of people who are interested in it there was like basically not really commercial interest in ai um, people especially in nlp just did it for their love of language <clears throat> but i found it like back then like super super interesting so in, in 29 i had great lecture um introduction to ai where the professor showed We explain every concept by programming Pac-Mans. So like whole semester, we were like writing Pac-Mans, like how to eat the bubbles, how to escape from the ghost, or if you're a ghost, like how to coordinate to catch the Pac-Man, like what strategies can you do? It was like super fun to do and to see and watch how your program gets smarter and smarter. And so I thought, yeah, in 13, 2013 would be great to go into like AI was super fun. And if a computer has the capability to understand text, I thought it's, it's super powerful because the yeah, majority of, of our knowledge, human knowledge is in form of like language. And if, if really the computer can tap to this language, to this knowledge, it becomes super, super powerful. So I was like really interested, how can you do this? Um, and nowadays it's, yeah, 10 years later, Finally, we, we see the potential for it, where we say, okay, if, if you train a machine, a big model on basically all the human knowledge, everything that's ever written, um, it becomes really, really powerful. Yeah, that's amazing. It is really amazing. And uh, I think that um, the, the great applications of it are um, ahead. Um, that's... Um, Very interesting to see how you've grow through your careers. If you had to say what you're trying to achieve today, what would you say? Um, 
Yeah, what, what I find super interesting is, is search and especially like search planning. So a lot of people still think um, search is solved. So they look at Google and ask like, okay, can be there like any improvements in search? Um, maybe it was a bit disrupted with ChatGPT, um, but it's still really in the beginning. So, so a lot of people in the field, they spend a lot of time to, to research stuff. So for example, you're in the financial um, domain, you see the uh, central banks, they're increasing the interest rates, which can put stress, financial stress on companies. And you want to know, okay, which companies are subjective to like financial stress due to the change environment. If you type this into Google, like which companies are subjective to financial stress, yeah, you, you don't get any search results. It's <laughs> like maybe you get a definition, but you don't get like up-to-date knowledge. So what we've done or what you totally do so far is you have like a lot of these humans that help you. Uh, so you go to them and say, hey, do like a research, um, find companies that are subjective to financial stress and they go out. It's maybe like a multi-week, maybe a month's project and then they come back with a report. Similar, if you're thinking about, um, I don't know, you, you see interest in generative AI and you ask like, okay, which companies will profit the most from generative AI? Yeah, you can't post this into Google. So if you post it into Google, there's like no results you get, or maybe someone did, did it. And I find like extremely fascinating. How can you build these? Like, how can you post a question, have a model, go out, access um, all available data, create follow-up questions, and then go down like different routes, explore different um, options, maybe backtrack if it's stuck in some point to then um, give you like a written summary and said, okay, based on this research, this is what I think these companies are most sub subjective to financial stress due to increased interest rates, or um, these companies will profit the most from generative AI based on ABC. Hmm. And what took previously like weeks or months for, for like people to do, hopefully you can do it in like an hour or a minute and get like these really detailed insights. And this could be fascinating for science because as a researcher, yeah, I mean, survey, paper survey is like such a central part for, for research are you interested in like, okay, how can we find a vaccine for, I don't know, COVID-19? How can we cure cancer? So where you as a researcher spend a significant amount of time to, yeah, search. So so you research. So, so it's part of the word research. You go in, you read, you build hypothesis, you think about how can you test hypothesis. Maybe sometimes you can reject it based on some other experiments from researchers, like how to automate this would be like really, really cool so that you maybe at some point can go in and say, okay, there's, I don't know, new terrible disease, a new COVID-19. Let's say, okay, how can we build like a vaccine? And then the system helps you and says, okay, based on this information, that's what you need to gather. Um, and yeah, hopefully be quicker in the process to create new things. That's awesome. That's awesome. So the first things that came to mind um, when you were uh, explaining this is uh, in the field of researchers. So you you have a PhD, and I would like to ask you about your PhD. But um, maybe like using this kind of search algorithms to build. Maybe there is some things that exist, kind of 
I'm not sure you'll tell me, but to map out each work of like, like each research by field and by work and like mapping out what have been done, what needs to be done, what needs to be pursued and like having this whole picture and like by probability showcasing where we could like focus specific research. Does that, is that a, a use case of what you were describing? Yeah, that's, that's sadly still really distant. So, so right now we're still like really early on in the process, like search, as I mentioned, it's really early on what works with, with Google is like, yeah, you know, something you, you want to find, you, you know, the topic or you want to find the topic and then you find like this one paper. Um, but you can't ask questions like, I don't know, let's say, let's take COVID-19. What are like symptoms of COVID-19? How is COVID-19 spreading? Um, how, why are some people like immune to it and not? And there's like no system yet that can distill like all this knowledge and say, okay, these are like the gaps in the knowledge that should we should explore this like the most promising. And so far, this is just, yeah, restricted to like really knowledgeable researcher in the field. But mm. yeah, every researcher in the field, they struggle as more and more papers are published. Like, like every day, the number of papers increases. Also in AI, if you go to archive, they are like, I don't know, 100 papers a day. Yeah. It's like really, really hard to get like these destillation and say, okay, I don't know, yeah. like you have... 10,000 papers trying to improve transformer architectures. Um, what's the gist out of it? What works? What doesn't work? And, yeah. and totally, you need really experienced researchers as of now to, to get the gist out of it and say, okay, this is like these three papers out of a thousand are promising, interesting, or here are trends that are like um, work well, let's say on, I don't know, positional embeddings in, in transformers. It's still like a big dispute, like how do you encode the position and do you need to position at all? So it would be great to, to have like these destillation methods or mm. architecture. <clears throat> but sadly, right now, we do not really know how to do it. And also like these large generative models, they, they sadly still don't know to do it, like really spot what's interesting, what's novel. So, so that's still restricted for humans, but yeah, it gives up more opportunities to do research engineering and find like ways how machines can get better, better at that. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, could you take us maybe through your PhD and, uh, what you were trying to achieve? Yeah. Um, so in 2012, there was like this ImageNet moment um, in computer vision where a neural network um, yeah, was so much better than any other system in the competition, which was like a really, really surprising for people in computer vision because um, they, everyone thought like neural network, it's a dead technology. Um, colleague of mine interacted with in the early 2000s with Hinton. <clears throat> who are still doing neural networks. And then he said, okay, if, if Hinton starts talking about neural networks again, I will leave, like immediately walk out of the door. How can he be so stupid to still do neural networks? Everyone knows it's a stupid idea, it doesn't work. So there was like <laughs> extremely strong sentiment <laughs> that just some crazy people are still doing neural networks and everyone who's smart does feature engineering and support vector machines, stuff like that. <clears throat> 
And I was like really surprising this, this ImageNet results. It was like so much better than any systems, a lot easier than any other system. So computer vision started to talk about my professor and NLP said, okay, yeah, people talk about neural networks again. Um, is it relevant also for NLP or not? So, so ask me to start and have a look. Is it relevant for NLP? Will it change NLP? Or is it just some hype that goes over after like six months and, and we don't need to focus on? So I started my PhD to explore the technology. So what is it? How to do it back then? Um, there were not really that much educational material available. And uh, no frameworks available. So my first neural networks, I programmed them in Java using um, arrays. So I had big arrays, multidimensional arrays, used intermediate arrays to store activations, computed the gradients by hand, and yeah, did this with like a lot of four loops over three-dimensional arrays, <laughs> four-dimensional arrays where you need to keep track of like all the things. Um, and yeah, so so. Yeah, I started with like exploring. So first one, what we saw in NLP is like named entity recognition. It was like a really cool paper at that time, um, NLP almost from scratch, um, that used the same architecture for part of speech tagging, chunking, named entity recognition, and I think semantic role labeling. It was like at that time totally fascinating that you can use the same architecture for the same for like four tasks. Um, I mean, all tasks are really similar. Is it's part of speech tagging where you say, okay, this is a verb or noun and named entity is like, is it a company name or person name? But at that time it was extremely fascinating to use the same architecture. Um, my colleagues didn't like it so much. So, so they came more from like a science perspective and asking, yeah, if you use these neural networks, what do you learn about language, like language patterns? Um, if you build a system that's able to detect sarcasm, it's a black box. So what do you learn about, like, how do we convey and transport sarcasm in language? So mm -hmm. they were really, really frustrated with neural networks. But I found it interesting from the engineering perspective because I said, yeah, I don't care about understanding how we express sarcasm. I'm interested to have a tool that's able to detect sarcasm or named entities or sentiment. Right. And so started with uh, named entity recognition, then went over to event detection. Like how can you find events? How is time expressed in articles, especially news articles? where you often have like one event happening and then some previous events, like some background story, some future story. Um, so, so how is like time expressed in articles and how can you build up what happened today, what happened in the past, what will happen in the future? Um, had a lot of challenges then with multitask learning. So at some point, multitask learning was like really popular. I tried to reproduce it. Which, which didn't work at all. So I showed a lot of issues in evaluation. So were people like overfitting and like how difficult is it to evaluate? And this has been like a really long, long, I don't know, aspect of my career to really care about how can you measure the progress in the field? Because what you often see is someone puts out like some data set, let's say named entity recognition. And the data set is from 2003 the articles are from the 80s and 90s from the Wall Street Journal. 
And sadly, still in 2023, you see people claiming like a new state of the art or named entity recognition using this this benchmark. I say it's it's not really yeah relevant or interesting because um, I mean it's data from the World Street Journal from the 80s. So what real value is it? And then often you see like really if you take these systems, they're super brittle. Um, for example, we try to use them to monitor investments in startups. And the challenge we had is um, that titles on TechCrunch are like a um, title case. So every word has an uppercase in the beginning. And these models claiming state-of-the-art, super awesome, deep learning, <clears throat> recognized every um, every word was like starting with an uppercase character as a um, named entity. So. If you see, saw like, I don't know, Facebook invest into in its employees and employees as was a capital E, thinks, yeah, employees must be a company. And then we saw, okay, Facebook invest in the company employees, which is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> so, so I really cared about like real world application scenarios. And, and here we need like a lot better benchmarks and it's still today. So, so evaluation of approaches, yeah. It's never good, never catches up, needs constant innovation improvements because that's the, the only thing uh, really making it better. So, so we put out some benchmarks, for example, <clears throat> in, in ZeroShot out of domain search, the beer benchmark. And yeah, this, this really transformed the field where we saw like a lot of people like overfit and, and think they make progress and exposing better and better what they think exposing and creating better and better systems. But then we showed, no, they are not better. They are like really worse in a lot of scenarios. And now we see, okay, more people care about like the more realistic, better scenarios. And then we see, okay, this started to, to um, started progress again. Hmm. That's fascinating. I really like the fact that through your research journey, you've been very focused into finding real world experiences. And like, how does it apply to the real world? This is maybe something that we're not seeing that much in research. And the fact that you've for a long time tried applications with like real, real, real data is, uh, is interesting. Do you feel like today's people who are doing PhDs are doing more of this kind of approach, or do you think that it is more something that you always find it interesting? Maybe it is related to the story where your colleagues wanted to understand the black box, but you wanted to have a, a model that can do something for you. Um, yet yeah, still, still a challenge in academia. So, so as a PhD student, um, you have pressure to publish papers. So many PhDs programs require that you need, I don't know, three, five, 10, whatever number of papers peer reviewed and accepted before you get your PhD. So there's like really high pressure also from funding agency. They look like, hey, how many um, papers did your research group publish? And then totally you, yeah, you go the easier route. So a really simple route, which works in our field. So you take some benchmark, 
can be whatever is popular. So Whispered was the glue benchmark and then sometimes super glue and now Helm or whatever. And then you just try to get like a bigger number. So if the previous system, let's say the bird system is said 80 and you get like 81, um, you, you can publish about it. People will read it and share for you. And that's where you get the paper, but there are like few people like really using it, looking at it, does the benchmark still make sense or not? Because if you come to the conclusion that the benchmark doesn't make sense, it's like, so what now? So, so how do you make progress? And that's, that's a hard one, like, like really answering, like how to make progress. That's really difficult compared to, I test a thousand different things. Um, I find like one thing that's a bit better on the glue benchmark. And then I write about this one thing that increases the glue benchmark. Hmm. And sadly, what we see is like really quickly get into like overfitting of on these benchmarks. So for example, the, the glue benchmark, um, which was really relevant, um, all the tasks in the glue benchmark are really short. So it's often on a sentence length. And what we saw in later papers where the authors write, yeah, um, they, they just tune the models, like the transformer model to be really good on like short text on a sentence length text. And then they get like a really good performance on this. And then you think, yeah, it's, it's good on blue. Uh, it's really, it must be better. And then you use it and it's not better. And the reason is your task is not on a sentence level, but like on a paragraph level, like 512 tokens. And there it performs really badly. Like because it's not covered by the benchmark, you don't see this. And this yeah really frustrates it and also explains why like bird base uncased a model from 2018, like five years ago, still think is the most popular transformer model on having face up nowadays, still used very widely. Um, because it was before yeah, people tried to over-optimize on one benchmark, which does not generalize to your own task. Hmm. That's super interesting. It makes me think of different approaches to research. Um, I would like to ask you about your current role at Cohere. Um, um, can you share about the mission of the company and, and the role you play into this mission? Yeah, sure. Um, so at Cohere, we are training foundation models in NLP. Um, there are like two foundational models versus generative model. Um, trained by my colleague Phil. Um, it's it's really similar to what we know in, in generative model. You give in a prompt, uh, write me an essay about, uh, I don't know, French Revolution, speaking as a pirate, and then it, you, you get the essay out. Um, what I'm responsible for is the foundation model for text understanding. So I'm not trying to produce new content, but understand text. Um, one is search. So how can you find relevant information for your search? Uh, the other is like classification given some text. How can you classify it into categories? And yeah, a really big focus is like combination of both. So if you ask a generative model, um, what did I discuss with my customer in the, I don't know, this year, uh, what were the main concerns customers had on our product? How can we improve our pricing transparency with customers? Standard out of the box chat GPT model. It doesn't know, maybe it hallucinates something, but it can, can't like really act on your data. So, and here's the power of like the combination where 
on the one side, you need search when I ask like, okay, what do our customers say about our pricing strategy? And you want to go into like all the CRM data you have, find the relevant information and then aggregate this information and then use it with like to generate model plus. And then you can ask like, okay, how could we make it more transparent where the generate model knows, okay, these are the pain points customers have. Okay, here are like five ideas you could do to, to um, remove these pain points. Hmm. And yeah, big focus of Cohere is like really enterprise deployments. So OpenAI, they target your yeah, individual developers and, and yeah, consumers like students. At Cohere, we're focusing a lot on like enterprise deployments. So recently announced big cooperation with Oracle. Um, where you have special requirements. So, so one is like, for example, data privacy. So how can data uh, be protected, that it's not leaked? Um, quality assurance is also one. So, so if you deploy this um, model in some startup, um, a generated model in some startup, there's like low risk. But if you're like a major company, let's say, I don't know, your Johnson & Johnson or JP Morgan or some car manufacturer, Toyota, and you deploy a generative model and then the model goes into like rampage, I don't know, giving like either hateful responses, bias responsible, wrong responses. So, so I don't know, a pharma company, company like Pfizer and you ask chatbot, hey, if I'm pregnant and I can I use this medication? And, and the chatbot says, yeah, go ahead, take the medication, it's safe and it's not safe, you're in major trouble. And then the company is also in major trouble. So, so a lot of questions we're dealing with customers look like quality insurance. So if you ask with a chatbot, with a pharma company, like which questions can, can the chatbot, for example, answer, which can, should they refrain? And how do you monitor? So, so if you see, okay, you spot a problem, um, how can you alleviate this either by filtering where the bot says, sorry, I refrain, I can't answer this. Please go see a doctor and ask a doctor on this. Um, or how can you update like the model to really yeah, be suitable for this specific deployment? Hmm. That's super interesting. And there is also the question of like, does the bot needs to say a hard stop or does it need to explain why it's stopping and, and the next procedure and uh, the, um, the process to follow? Um, uh, that's super interesting. And because you apply these models, um, in, in enterprise, I would like to ask you about vector databases. Um, we've seen a lot of evolution on vector databases with new, new startups, new companies growing from this. What is your point of view on the possibilities of uh, vector databases and do you use it um, when working with clients yourself? Yeah, um, yes, super cool to, to see the evolution of vector databases. Um, so, so when I started to work on vectors, there was just the face library. Um, but then like, yeah, they saw the potential of this to, to deploy it and it's really nice. And yeah, vectors in general, um, it's a really good, good representation for, to convey meaning for computers. So um, computers itself, 
like the written text, the bytes, the characters has not so much meaning. Um, so, so if you take like the word hotel and motel, um, it's like really hard to see how are these two words connected. Sometimes it's like iPhone and Apple, like how are these connected? And just from the characters, like impossible to have the, the meaning. And here dense vectors are like really good way to store the meaning and enable the computer to reason about your data. So, so, so instead of just storing like, okay, I don't know, different products in e-commerce, I don't know, Apple and iPhone, you also store what's the meaning to allow like, um, yeah, reasoning about, um, yeah, about stuff. So, so I think it's a really powerful technology um, at hand. Hmm. And what's to, to, to your, um, from your perspective, there is something that I don't really understand about companies, for example, I don't know, we'll just say a random name, top of mind, like Bicone or like all those companies that give this service of vectorized database. I don't understand like the, like from my perspective, it is um, whatever form of database. I don't know, like... Uh, like a relational database uh, and I have tables and one column is a vector and I can use an algorithm that goes through this column and using a cosine similarity, for example, I could do matches. Uh, so this is one way, but those companies, is this what they're doing or do they optimize things for vectors? And do you have visibility on, on this? And, and, and to show me, uh, show me the way. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, going row by row, by row um, this works up to like a certain number of, of rows. So, yeah. so in search, let's say you have like all Wikipedia, um, every Wikipedia article is a vector. Um, the more articles uh, you have, the longer it takes if you go row by row. So what they do is like optimize it so so really make it sure that you can search over like millions billions of these vectors within milliseconds and what they do is like like find ways so, so they take the vector space and then there are like different algorithms so that you can match like really quickly where you say okay you have a search query you ask like i don't know what's the capital of the united states you encode this in the vector space, and then they have algorithms to really quickly, within milliseconds, to say, okay, these are the top closest vectors on Wikipedia, document vectors on Wikipedia, and then to, to give you these results. And building these index, this is quite different. So, so far in databases, we know all, yeah, you should use an index to do a lookup. So if you have a user table and you want to check is there like an email address in this in this user table? You don't want to go like row by row and compare it. You want to have like an index. And all these indices and in existing databases, they are like exact match typically. So say, okay, this is the one email address. Is there like a user with this email address? Or here I have like, I don't know, some ID, which rows matches these IDs like user ID. But embeddings, it's always these fuzzies like, like, you say, okay, that's that's my query embedding. These are my document embeddings, which are close, which areas are really dense. So here you need like a different index structure, which is yeah, non-trivial to build. 
and even harder it is to, to, to maintain it, like totally in a database, data is added, modified, deleted. And this changes like relationships in the, the index, like which documents are close. So, so if you add like a new document to it, um, you need to update it. So really common index is kind of is the graph index where you store like for every document, which documents are close, which are in the neighborhood. Um, if you add like a new document to it, you need to update it because now this document can be closer to something else. So you need to have these nodes and edges. And this becomes like really challenging if you do it at large scale. So anything up to like 100,000 embeddings, you can just do brute force, row by row, compute cosine similarity. But when it's like a million or a billion, it becomes a challenge or also like in distributed setups. So if you do like web scale retrieval, have the full internet indexed, um, it's too big for a single machine. So here's the question, how can you, yeah, distribute it across machines and work with like these changing data, like where vectors are added and then neighborhoods are changing. Hmm. Well, awesome. Thanks for the explanation. Yeah, and it made me think of like different ways, different algorithms to perform these. The scaling part is uh, tough, looks hard, uh, but super interesting and, and the applications are endless. Um, and so when, when you're working with your clients, do you do you implement uh, vector databases or is this or no? Yeah, search is a common use case um, where I say, okay, we have this data, I don't know, customer reviews, we want to know what do people think, I don't know, let's say you're like, I don't know, fast food restaurant and you want to know what do our customer think about our vegan options. Um, it's it's good if you have like indexed on a vector wise because then it's like really easy to find all customer voices talking about vegan options at your restaurant. And then you can quickly analyze and say, okay, these are like, I don't know what people like, dislike, how does it change over time? And yeah, here vector database is like a really good, good way because we all know transformer models, they are like, yeah, slow and expensive, especially the bigger ones. If you, obviously you could run it like each time, let's say you have like a million um, customer reviews for each question you could, go from start, from scratch, and, and um, ask the model, okay, this is the first text, second text, third text. But each question would be like a million forward passes on the model. So that's like really, really slow. And here embeddings is like a really good way for like caching. So you're trading compute for, for memory. So it's a typical trade-off memory where this compute. You run the transformer model once over the million embeddings you store in the semantic vector space, the meaning, and then you can easily reason about this, like what do people think about the vegan options or um, I don't know, more complex questions like, okay, who are like the most loyal customers for who is like especially appealing or vegan option, vegan vegetarians, which other food options do they like at our restaurant? stuff like that. And then you're reusing uh, the compute you have been done only once. Hmm. Hmm. The, uh, I wanted to ask you something else, but there is a question that came into mind. It's um, 
how did you combine like techniques such as clustering or sentiment analysis to vector database and like do you have some examples of like great applications uh, of those of clustering and sentiment analysis on top of uh, data uh, vector databases So yeah, clustering is is clustering yeah. is already done, no? Or by the yeah, or no. no class clustering you can do it on vector space operations. Um, what is a bit challenge is is the way how vector databases operate. Um, so totally clustering, what you do, um, you compare every vector to every other vector. So you compute the distance for every point to every other point, which is a problem as it scales like uh, quadratics. So if you have like a thousand points, it's like a million comparisons. If you have a million points, it's a million times a million comparisons. So here vector databases are a bit slow. They are not really optimized for this. Um, frameworks like phase are more suitable. So really phase um, yeah, the, the first version of phase was really dedicated. K means clustering. So how to find clusters in these vector spaces. And then you can say, okay, these are regions of high density. These are like really common voices from um, customers. Um, sentiment analysis um, also works really nicely. So a lot of also larger companies are using it um, at scale. For example, at Facebook, um, every action post image is embedded and stored, and then there are like different classifiers on top of the embeddings. And often people use like really simple classifiers like logistic regression, really the most simple classifier you learn at the start of your machine learning class uh, that just linear separates the, the vector space to the left and to the right. And because these um, vector spaces, they encodes, encode so much meaning in it. Um, it's really easy and really powerful because it's already in the embedding and then the classifier just needs to see, okay, which dimensions encode like the sentiment. And what can we capture from this logistic regression uh, that separates the vector? Like what kind of, what is the next step after it? Um, yes, yeah, sometimes, um, it, it, it's, it's narrows down to like, how does the vector space look like? So if we take like sentiment, um, in search, for example, sentiment is not really relevant. So, so if you, if I search like, I don't know, iPhone 14 review, I want to find like positive and negative reviews on the iPhone, <clears throat> hence positive and negative reviews of the iPhone are really close in the vector space. Um, but this then becomes like challenging for clustering where I want to like totally like, I don't know, cluster things that are positive away from things that are negative on the product or also like uh, classifications. So, so if you run it on it and it's like a really messy vector space where there's like not a clear dimension to, to separate on sentiment, um, the, the simple classifier, logistic regression classifier can't do it. What you could do is like train a more complex classifier on top of it. Um, but what we found is like, uh, what works really well is constructive training. So you, you update the transformer, you tell the transformer, okay, your task is sentiment. 
and you want to have like a really clear separation in the vector space. So like all positive things should be, I don't know, in the left part of the vector space or negative things should be in the right part of the vector space. And then these transformer models, they're really, really strong and powerful just from a few examples. So you present like five examples and then it says, yeah, okay, I need to, to generalize on like sentiment and gives you like a really clear vector space where everything that's positive is on the left, everything neutral, maybe in the central, everything negative on the right. And then you can still, again, learn like the simple logistic regression classifier, say, okay, here's the separation. And then the challenge there's just like the boundary, like, like if someone says something like, yeah, the film was not great, but also not terrible. Is it yeah. positive? Is it negative? Where do you put it? Do you put it into neutral? Yeah. Or is someone, yeah, it was kind of okay, the film. Is this already positive or not? So this, like these boundaries, like really hard. But these vector approaches, they, it's nice because they give you like the distance to the um, decision boundaries. So, so if, if someone says, yeah, this film was kind of okay, you see, okay, it's really close to the decision boundary, so it's not really confident, the model. Um, if instead someone says, oh, best film I've ever seen, I totally love it, you have to see it. It's like really distant, like really deep in the positive area of the vector space. And then you yeah, can, can rank them. And that's like really nice for like a lot of QA moderation tools. Let's say like hate speech is like really... I don't know, can also be like really hard to detect hate speech. So, so typically content moderators, they want first review and spot the most clear cases of hate speech where it's like really, really clear. You don't want this on the platform and then you can rank it and say, okay, at some point it becomes like really fuzzy and hard to say, okay, should you block it or not on the platform? Mm. Mm. Yes. Why is that super interesting? Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, so I think before I, I ask you the, the little questions uh, that I always do at the end of the episodes, uh, which are like, how can people connect with you, know, know more things about you, your company, and also um, if you have a little message for, for all the Let's Talk AI community. Um, we didn't really talk about uh, Hugging Face. Could you share a bit about uh, your work there and and like the challenges and what you've learned? Yes, so at Hugging Face, I was part of the science team. Um, it was really great. So, so the science team is doing really fundamental work, really similar to academia in, in like an open way sharing. Um, one initiative I've been working with is the big science project um, where the blue model came from. Um, where we tried to find, okay, can we use retrieval to improve the generative model? <clears throat> um, where, yeah, we, where we mostly struggled with evaluations. So how can we evaluate if we're adding search to the model, is the generated output better or not? So, mm. so that was a big struggle. And the other big project I've been doing there is... Um, how can you use these or train these embedding models without labeled data? So, so totally embedding models, you train them with a lot of labeled data, like millions, billions of training pairs to say, okay, that's, for example, for search, this was search query. This is the relevant answer. Um, but what do you do if you don't have this data? 
because it's still the most common question. So what do I do if I don't have like these hand labeled data? And so, yeah, we, we worked on a lot of projects to improve it, um, to, to really see how well does it work, um, which approaches work well across domains and so on. Mm, that's fascinating. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Niels. Uh, thanks a lot for like answering all these amazing questions. Maybe just just out of curiosity, how what is your how do you feel about open source against working with companies? Uh, yeah, I mean, open source is is great. I mean, every developer uses open source. Uh, I think if you can't use open source, it's like really really tough. So like PyTorch, Hugging Face Transformers, all amazing open source projects, really critical um, in the ecosystem. Sadly, sometimes appreciation for open source is a bit tough. So you have like these massive, big, multi-billion dollar companies heavily relying on open source projects. And then, yeah, sadly not contributing either like financially or like resource wise. Um, which is then really hard for the open source maintainers. So, so you see, okay, it has a lot of traction. I don't know, big, big companies use it as part of their tech stack, but then maybe they do like a one-time donation of $100, which is then a bit hard for the open source maintainer um, to, yeah, to live from, to pay your rent and to buy food for your family. So I think, yeah, finding business models, sustainable business models around open source is an interesting thing. It's a challenge. Um, also kind of challenge where we saw sometimes at Hugging Face, um, the easier it is and the better the product is, uh, the less users incentivized to pay. So if, if you, let's say, build a database that works amazingly. So it can scale to like trillions of users, really easy to maintain. So, so it's like totally worry-free. So why should like a massive company like pay money for it when you give it out for free? And if the product has challenges at scale, it's, it needs expert um, consultancy supervision, then companies come in and, and um, sign up with like um, support agreements and service level agreements to say, hey, we need your expertise. We're running your database across 10 data centers for a billion users, but it's breaking and it's low. So now please help us to, to get it fixed. And then they're willing to pay. But if you have like this perfect model, this perfect product that doesn't need like any maintenance and service, there's sadly, a lot of users are not incentivized to, to pay, which is, is sad. So, so there are like some mis-incentives um, how to design it. And then it can sometimes be like a constant fight, like people developing this open source and then people in the business department and company strategy. So, so. yeah, it's, it's an interesting field. Hmm. I feel the same way. Um, the open source communities very very impressive well thanks a lot Nils, for your time uh the little three question at the end would you have some some words for the people who are starting in the industry interested in deep learning machine learning like what what should they where should they go what should they read do you have some words about that some guidance yeah sure um yeah i always found it helpful 
to, to use your own technology and build with it and and yeah try to to break it so like all all the stuff i've built in many cases i've been the the most active user and consumer of it especially like in frameworks um i i, I don't know sentence transformer i'm still using it on a daily basis and then when i say okay something is annoying for me or it breaks i yeah just fix it for myself and then hopefully this generalize to other users but also if you build a model um it's, it's really good to to not rely just on benchmarks, but I really see use it and it, is it working or not? And then each time you see like a mismatch where you say, okay, this, this is, I don't know, this approach works well on the benchmark. It should be amazing. But if you use it, it feels like crap. It gives you an opportunity to understand it, to learn and say, okay, why, why is the benchmark failing? How to improve it and how to make it better? So the next time, um, yeah, you, you deploy the model, um, it's better. So it's similar to like unit testing. So that's what I've been doing a long time for unit testing and software. If there is a bug, uh, something breaks unintentional. And before fixing it, I write like a unit test to prevent that it happens in the future again. And something same could be done with like maybe models. So it can be a bit harder, but it would be great to have the same where you say, okay, here it breaks. Why is it not catch with that? unit test like the benchmarks we have and how can we make it better to prevent that this happens again in the future hmm. that's super interesting uh super interesting like break things and and like have these benchmarks to like test in a more methodolic method i <laughs> structured yeah. structure structured way uh, awesome. Where can people see your work, your posts? Um, do you have, where can people connect with you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, still doing a lot of like, yeah, tutorials, uh, talks, sometimes publishing. So currently doing a lot of like interesting work with a PhD student on long document retrieval. <clears throat> So yeah, just go on Twitter and LinkedIn, search for Niels Reimers, and then you'll find me, follow me. And yeah, check out Cohere, especially if you're interested in like search and connecting it to generative AI. That's awesome. I'll put all the link in the description, like always. Thanks a lot for your time. Would you have some last words for the Let's Talk AI community? Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, Communities, AI communities are really amazing what they do, um, especially if they start to organize, collaborate. It's like really, really powerful. And yeah, in the past, we've seen a lot of community projects really impactful, um, which are really, really cool and really valuable in the field. That's awesome. Thanks again for your time, Niels. I wish you all the best uh, in, in everything you're doing. It is very inspiring um, for me at least, and I'm pretty sure for a lot of people. So thanks for that also, and I wish you to have a great day. Great, thank you. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues, or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.